Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad that you are here to deepen and grow in your relationship with Christ. Today's message is brought to us by Cody Scholes, Orchard's Youth Director. Good morning. I'm Cody Schultz. I am the youth director here at Orchard, and it's my pleasure today to walk through the Gospel of John. And as I was preparing for today, and as as Pastor Matt asked me to speak, he said, hey, you can preach on anything. And so I said, great, that's a lot. And so I began praying, and I began seeking, and I actually really appreciate that this sign for the the series that Matt just finished up last week is still up here because we've spent the last who knows how long focusing on Jesus and the fact that he is greater than all, right? That he is bigger than anything else in this world that we might run to for comfort, for salvation, for anything. He is greater than all. And so I felt that as the Lord led me to our passage for this morning, he was saying, hey, this is a perfect way to kind of come in after because of how it also depicts Jesus as not just powerful, not just greater, but also intimate. And what I mean by that is that he has a close relationship with humanity, with us, his people. He knows us and we know him. And as he invites us to be part of the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't do it as this powerful God that's way off in the distance. He does it as this God who is near and dear, who draws close and who knows us personally. And he also invites us to know him. But before we dive into our passage for this morning, I just want to set the scene for a moment of what we're walking into, because this is a a very strange circumstance uh, when you stop and think about it. You see, Jesus is going to be speaking to the Pharisees, right? So he's speaking to the religious leaders of the day, and he's this guy who's been doing stuff in the countryside to this point. He's been performing some miracles, but people aren't really talking about it, and he's been teaching some things, but he's not quite mainstream, and so they're still trying to figure out exactly who this Jesus guy is. And he comes to the religious leadership of the day and he says, now get this, you've got it wrong. Now imagine that someone from out of nowhere came up to a group of pastors who lead our church today and say, hey, by the way, you've missed it. Isn't that strange? Isn't that odd? But this is where we find ourselves this morning. This is where we are starting. And so if you'll look at me, We're going to dive into verses 1 through 5 just to start, right? We're just going to take that chunk, and we're going to explain what's going on once we finish up those first five verses. He says this, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, that anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And so as our passage opens today, 
we see that Jesus chooses an image that would have been familiar with his audience, right? Even if you weren't a shepherd, you would have a rudimentary understanding of how a shepherd would tend his flock. And so as he opens up with this image, he initially focuses on the pen. Now, he's not explaining to the Pharisees just yet why he's talking about a shepherd and why he's talking about the shepherd's pen and the relationship that the shepherd has to his sheep. He's just telling them about a shepherd and his sheep. Strange, right? Well, this pen, as he starts to describe it, if you look in the language of the, of the original language it was written in, the Greek, it describes the pen as being familial, of being private. And so there's a nature of almost exclusivity to who gets to belong to the flock. And this pen is going to become an image for the kingdom of heaven. And we'll get there, but we're going to explain exactly what he means when he says that there's a private nature to this. And this pen is described as having an entrance. It's having a singular door, which means there is one way in and one way out but that there are going to be others who try to gain access to this pen by a different path, whether it be coming in the side or sneaking in the back. They're going to try and cut the line, as a matter of speaking. And these people that try to access the pen by another way are labeled as a thief and a robber. And they're contrasted with the shepherd, and they will be contrasted three times throughout our passage. Well, in verse 3, we are introduced to a third character, the gatekeeper, one who stands at the gate and controls entrance to the sheep. This character sets up for something that comes much later in our passage, but it indicates that this flock that Jesus is speaking of, that this shepherd is in charge of, is a large flock because he needs help tending and keeping track of it. He needs assistance. And as the shepherd leads his flock. As the gatekeeper lets him in to tend his flock, we see that the shepherd is therefore known as the rightful owner, the rightful director of his flock. But not only that, but he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. He knows them individually. It says he knows them by name, and they know his voice. And that's contrasted with the stranger, who when the stranger tries to direct them, they do not listen to him because they know that his voice is not the voice of the shepherd. And so we see Jesus start to depict the closeness of the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep, the fact that he knows them and they know him. And what we're going to see much later in the passage is that the shepherd is Jesus. That he is not just the shepherd, but the good shepherd. And that he desires to know his sheep. He desires to know his people. And that he desires that his people know him. And so one of the questions I want to pose to you is, do you know Jesus? Do you seek to follow him and listen to his voice? Because the authoritative position of the shepherd is such that he is leading, but also that we are to follow. Finally, in verse 5, I already mentioned this, but Jesus draws one more distinction between the shepherd and the robber. 
This is already the second distinction that he makes and that the sheep would not listen to him. And so as he finishes up his little illustration where he's talking about the sheep and the shepherd, we transition to verse 6. And verse 6 says this. It says, Jesus used this figure of speech, this illustration, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. The Pharisees are sitting there going, why are you telling us this? What's the point? Why do we need to know about a shepherd and his flock and and his pen and all of this sort of stuff? And it's at, at this moment that Jesus takes this vague illustration that is talking about something of that day and turns it into something powerful. And he starts to adjust and move forward by explaining what he means as he's been telling the Pharisees this. And so in verse 7, he says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. And so with verse 7, if we pause right there real quick, he begins to interpret his illustration, right? And he starts with this authoritative statement, I am the door. That singular access point to the kingdom of heaven, he says, that's me. The only way is through me. There is no other path. And so we start to see that access to the kingdom of heaven goes only through him, but also that the explanation for this illustration is entirely wrapped up in the personhood of Jesus, right? That he becomes the focal point of what it means to understand what is going on here in John 10. And immediately we see him as the access point to the pen. And we understand that he is the one who mediates all access to the kingdom of heaven and that there is no other way than through Jesus. And then in verse 8, very interesting, he makes it clear who the thieves and the robbers are. He says, all those who came before me are the thieves and the robbers, right? And he doesn't use language that, that specifically isolates a group of people. He literally says all, which is a uniquely inclusive statement. And I think he's doing two things here. First, he's talking to the religious leaders of the day. And so he's needling at them and he's pointing at them and he's saying, hey, you've missed it. You're a corrupt bunch of people who've been out here for your own selfish gain who've been trying to get what you can out of life and just trying to force other people to follow your will in the process. But he's doing something else when he says all, right? He's indicating that he is different from anyone else who's ever come before. You see, that term all would also include past leaders of Israel, people like David and Abraham and Moses, people who we've been taught to look up to because of their faithfulness at least most of the time, right? They've fallen every now and again. And you're just saying, hey, I'm different. As he's saying, all those who come before me are thieves and robbers. He's saying, I am different from the rest of humanity. And I am uniquely poised to do something that they could not. 
And so he is setting himself apart. He's saying, I'm different. And he's going to explain exactly how he is different in just a moment. And so how is that? Well, verse 9. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Verse 9 begins by repeating that I am statement. I am the door. And with a powerful understanding of what lies behind the door, that is salvation, that is the right to become part of the kingdom of heaven. And he says something interesting again. He makes another all-inclusive statement. He says, whoever enters the door. And if you were listening to me earlier, I described this pen that has this singular door as having a familial and a private nature, which has almost an exclusive sort of nature to it, right? Well, here we start to see Jesus explain in what way is it exclusive. Because it's not exclusive in the sense that there's only specific people who are allowed in. It is exclusive in the sense of how you enter. Right? You must go through Jesus. And as going through Jesus, you will be saved. And so as he is progressing and as he is explaining to this to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are hearing this and they're going, wait a minute. That's not what we believe. That's not what we fold. See, for hundreds of thousands of years, the Pharisees have thought that the Jews were God's chosen people, that these were the ones who were going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, nope, we're going to flip that on its head. We're going to change that. And so he's adjusting their expectation, something they're not exactly going to love. But he's saying that all are welcome in the kingdom but there's no other way than through me. Well, verse 9 is contrasted with verse 10, where the robber has a very different intention for the sheep, right? Jesus' intention is that they will be saved, that they will have life, and we'll see that too in just a moment. But in verse 10, it says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Another translation says that you may have life and have it to the full. This third and final glaring distinction between the shepherd and the thief or the robber makes complete the understanding that the thief's desire is selfish. It's only after what he can get and what he wants, and he'll stop at nothing to get it, and it ultimately leads to destruction. But the shepherd, his nature, his goodness, is such that he desires to give, to bless you with the rich, abundant life and an opportunity to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And so how is he going to do this? How does this become a reality? Well, let's look at verse 11. When he makes it finally clear who the shepherd is. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So earlier we had him say, I am the door. Now, that is the third of seven I am statements Jesus makes throughout the book of John. This is the fourth. 
They're not all this close together. And this statement, I am the good shepherd, is one that really would have gotten the Pharisees riled up. Because they wouldn't have just heard him saying, oh, hey, this illustration that I've been making about a shepherd tending his flock, I am that shepherd. They wouldn't have just heard that. They would have also heard Ezekiel 34, right? As, as men who were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, they would have heard this prophecy, and we'll have it, I think, up on the screen for you. But Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16 say this, and it's God speaking. It says, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and I will bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And so the Pharisees who are listening to Jesus say, I am the good shepherd would have said, wait a minute. God promised us, he told us that he would tend his flock. And this man is claiming that he is the one who is going to be doing that tending. This man just made a claim to be God. It's a bold claim. It's a powerful claim. As the Pharisees are expecting this conquering king, someone who's going to come and be a great military leader and free them from all oppression from the Romans and things like that, this guy who comes out of the wilderness who's been eating bugs and stuff and is a little bit emaciated is the last thing that they're expecting. But Jesus has been clear as day. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to set you free. But not only that, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And not wanting that willingness to go unnoticed, he then contrasts himself with a hired hand. With someone who has been hired to assist him, like the gatekeeper that we mentioned earlier, to tend to the flock. And so verse 12, it says this, The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand might have the best of intentions. His intention is not for the flock to be harmed in any way, shape, or form. But the reality is, is that he has a higher sense of self-preservation than he has a higher sense to care for the flock. That's what Jesus is saying here in verses 12 and 13. And he's contrasting himself with that. He's, he's saying, hey, I am the shepherd. I am the owner of the flock. Everyone who is part of the kingdom of heaven is mine, and I love them with a self-sacrificing love, the kind of love that would lead me to lay down my life for you. And then in verse 14, he reiterates, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Consider that for a moment. The nature of that relationship 
way earlier in verses uh, like three, he says, I know my sheep by name and they know my voice, right? And we talked about the nature of the relationship and how close and how intimate it is. Well, he just reiterates to the people that I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He wants to bring that to the forefront. Because as we have talked about, Jesus is this powerful God, this coming Messiah. But he is also a God who knows each and every one of us by name, knows us personally and intimately, knows what makes us tick, the ways we excel and the ways that we fail. And while he knows us perfectly, he loves us sacrificially. And he invites us to know him in the same way. At the end of verse 15, he says, And I, my, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Consider for a moment the fact that he is comparing the relationship that he has with his sheep to the relationship he has between himself and the Father. Is there any closer relationship than that between God the Father and God the Son? Any relationship that would be more intimate, more knowing of one another than that? And he says, that's the type of relationship that I am inviting you into, to be fully known, fully loved, and to fully know me. And it says, out of that relationship, I lay down my life for the sheep, to love you sacrificially. And this invitation is extended to all in verse 16 as it says, I have other sheep that are not of this pen, and I will bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Right? If the Pharisees might have missed it earlier when Jesus alluded to the fact that there were, more than, there were going to be more than just the Jews in the kingdom of heaven, he's making it clear here. He's like, hey, these sheep here, yeah, it's not just you guys. It's all races, all people, all believers, everywhere who are going to be welcomed in. And he's like, I don't want you to miss this because this is going to be important. And he says, and they're going to come, and we're not going to have a bunch of little pens here and there, but we're going to have one flock brought together, the same as there is going to be one gate, one way. Which brings us to our final two verses of the morning, verses 17, where he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I received from my Father. This is the third time that Jesus makes clear his willingness to lay down his life for his flock. That even before the Pharisees have started to hatch this plan that they are going to kill Jesus, he says, if this is where it goes, so be it. See, because he knows it's coming. He's aware that this is the ultimate reality of where they are headed. 
And he's saying, you can't take anything from me that I haven't already willingly given up. That I don't know that I'm already going to do. But he also adds in there, I also have the authority to pick it up again. And he tells the Pharisees straight to their face, hey, you're going to try and kill me. It ain't going to work. I'm going to come back to life. And we know as, as New Testament hearers of the word that as we see this play out in the story that we know is to be celebrated on Easter, that he does exactly this. He dies for you and me. He lays down his life only to take it back up again three days later so that you and I might have that new life and have it to the full. But it's interesting to note that it says here at the end of verse 18 that that authority to do so was given to him by the Father. I couldn't imagine a more painful permission to give as a new father than to say, yes, son, go to earth with the willingness to die, to be raised again. But this is the length to which our God loves us, his willingness to serve us so that he might have a relationship with us, so that he might know us. And so that we might know him. So I want to reiterate that question I have. Do you know God? Do you hear his voice? Do you listen and follow where he leads? I skipped over it very briefly, but early on in our passage, it talks about him bringing out the sheep. And once he has all of them out of the pen, because he's not going to leave a single one behind, he goes before them and he leads them. We follow a good God who is not willing to send us anywhere that he is not willing to go himself. And that is a God that's worth following. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your nature and your character that you are a God who loves and serves and blesses us richly. Lord, I pray that we would respond with the same love, with the same relationship, and the same desire to know you. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for our time in your word. I pray that you would bring it to rest on our hearts and minds. In your name we pray. Amen.